and welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast with your hosts, Emma Cole and Will Strickson. Will, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm glad to be back on. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Glad to have you back on. Uh, What have you been up to? Uh, I've been busy, obviously, with work because we also have a magazine and a website. We do. Which is very important on social media. Uh, But I've been doing a bit of DIY recently, getting my hands dirty, doing some sawing of some wood, I guess, to make some panelling for redecorating the hallway. So I'm building up my, uh, not so PC to say, but man points. Not that PC's a thing. It's 2023. Come on, get a grip. Uh, DIY points. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Nick Knowles would be very proud of me. Ah, oh, Nick Knowles. What TV show was he in? DIY SOS. Ah, oh, sorry. Yeah, I used to watch that as a kid. How did I forget? And there was that other gardening one as well. DIY SOS oh. is not specifically gardening, but you're talking about Ground Force. Oh, Ground Force. That was the one. God, uh, what was... have you been up to? We will mention this later on in this podcast, but you are about to set off on a very big adventure. I am, yeah. I am um, about to head off to Tunisia. I'm cycling from uh, London to Tunisia. So I've been training, desperately trying to train uh, with my bags on my bike, as I once made this mistake with a previous trip and had a big old shock on my first day when I put them on. Um, but yeah, I've been doing a lot of camping, a lot of getting comfortable on my own in a sleeping bag, just listening to the birds and worrying about snakes coming to bite me (laughs) because that's my biggest fear. Um, But I'm hoping that (laughs) I won't see any. I mean, we do have the perfect guest on today to help you on your way, really, don't we? Exactly. I'm buzzing. I can't wait for some proper advice and some inspo. And so when, you know, when like the gets hard and like mentally you're a bit drained, I'm just going to think of all the advice from this podcast and tap into it. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> what you should be thinking about is your work because that is more important than thinking about all the inspiration. You should be thinking, what is the next article you're going to write? What is your hard-hitting journalism you're going to do? Do you need... And that gives you the work, doesn't it? That's the inspiration right there. And trust me, there's going to be a whole load of content that's going to come out of this. Good and bad, probably. Me waffling away about that time that I, I don't know, saw a donkey on the side of the road. <laughs> and the other stuff where I'm not hallucinating and I've had enough sleep. So it's all very exciting. So do make sure you you keep your eyes on cyclist.co.uk for all of Emma's updates from her travels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, now on to our guest that we've mentioned. Um, she's a world record holder. She's the fastest person to cycle around the world unsupported. Uh, she's Jenny Graham. Uh, Jenny has recently brought a book out on her experience and she's here to tell us all about it. So let's welcome Jenny to the podcast. Jenny Graham, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. You're a Scottish endurance cyclist who in 2018 became the fastest woman to cycle around the world unsupported. Um, You cycled over 18,000 miles in 124 days and 11 hours. Um, And now you've just written a book all about it called Coffee First, Then the World, One Woman's Record-Breaking Pedal Around the Planet. First of all, how did you even get into cycling? Um, that's lovely. I've not had that full introduction yet, Emma. I've not had the the round the world cyclist and author. So it's just like felt my cheekbones burning there when you said that out loud. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm from the Highlands of Scotland. So, you know, I've cycled, um, yeah, just like cycled all my life, but always as a like mode of transport or like just as play as a kid. Um, and then like as an adult, you know, yeah, to get around the place 
choice, but I didn't really find out about biking as a sport as such until I was in my mid-20s and I got introduced to mountain biking and that was, yeah, that was it for me. It was just like the places that I could go and it, it just unlocked such a, an amazing place that I was living in already, being in the Highlands and it just like unlocked all these hidden gems. And then did you go into racing? Did you do the Highland Trail? Yeah, I did. So I didn't go straight into racing. So I went, um, I started mountain biking when I was about 24, but I've got a son, Lachlan, who had just started school at that time. So I was, you know, I was a mum young. And so my all my 20s were sort of taken up with family, like family staff. I would go out mountain biking if Lachlan was, you know, at, like at school or, um, you know, at birthday parties or just like making time, basically. But it was only when he got older and you know like as he grew up that my sort of endurance grew as well because then I was having more and more time that I could spend on my bike and it got to the point when I was in my mid-30s that I'd come across the Highland Trail 550 and I'm not from a racing background at all I'm not even from a sporty background to be honest I'm like you know, I'm really adventurous and always have been and I love the outdoors and always have done. But uh, sport is such like I used to write all my own notes to get out of PE at school. I just like hated it. And I didn't know like what I imagined sport being and racing being was very different from the sort of world that I found when I was in my mid 30s. Um, and yeah, I find the Highland Trail 550, which is a 550 mile mountain bike race across the Highlands of Scotland, all around it. And it's self-supported. So there's a suggested start time where about 50 or 60 people line up and start. And then they just all follow the same route and during that time you decide as a rider when you want to ride when you want to sleep when you want to eat there's no rules on what you carry there's no rules on how you do it and um, I just absolutely fell in love with that way of racing and it was so so personal but yet you're in it with so many like-minded people like there's literally no podium at the end you know there's like it's like everybody's journey and story is just as important as the as the folk at the sharp end of it so it's just yeah like a beautiful race and I'm completely romanticizing it because I've not done it for a couple of years it's so hard it's unbelievable like I've gone to the start line four times and I've only completed it twice so wow. yeah having some distance from it I've, I've built it up to be this fairy tale <laughs> you found that with a lot of stuff you're doing because for endurance it's just so much like mental and physical pain so you can't be enjoying it surely that much while you're doing it but then I'm sure there comes like a huge afterglow with that yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because you know, if I'm like type type one, type two fan, you'll be well aware of that sort of mindset. And I think when I first started, I, I'd be in type two fan a lot. So that's the sort of fan that you're not enjoying it at the time, but you'd go back and like, you know, speak about it in the pub and it's the best story in the world, that sort of fun. And a lot of the stuff I did was type two in my head. And then I had this shift that all of a sudden it wasn't type two fan anymore more it was it was actually just sort of fairly enjoyable and some bits 
got a little bit type two, but the majority of them were, you know, just like sitting in quite a happy place. Um, so although you're not like you might not be like roaring around laughing and having, you know, having that like instant obvious fun, I think having that contentment on the bike whilst not a lot is happening is is like quite a nice place. It's almost like your flow state, you know, it's like the equivalent of your flow state in mountain biking if you're like just nailing that beautiful single techie single track. Um, but when you're an endurance, it's like that contentment when there's not a whole lot else going on. So you did some of these events uh, and then how did you get to riding around the world? What was, it's quite a big jump. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a big jump, isn't it? I mean, it didn't feel like a big jump and I don't think it was necessarily a big jump. So uh, that was maybe, uh, maybe I was 34 actually. I feel like there was four years between the first Highland Trail and Ride the World. But it might have been three. Um, but yeah, during that time, I was really discovering my endurance ability. And, you know, I was already a big hill goer. I knew that I had that sort of diesel engine where it took to go out and have like massive days and still being like, really happy at the end of it because I still had plenty in the plenty left in the tank but I would never be the first one up the top of the hill at the start of the day you know so I knew that I knew that I had that ability and the Highland Trail just sort of opened up exploring that by bike now so um, I would do longer and longer sessions on the bike and you know I even bought a road bike just so as I could train for for mountain biking and not like not get so exhausted and uh, when I got a road bike that was it I was like holy moly like going out and doing a hundred mile back to back days from like a lassie that would write her own notes to get out of PE I was just like amazed like oh my god I can't believe my body and mind can do this um but it was a real progression, you know, I didn't just like roll out of bed and be able to do it. It was like a real, and probably because I had to, because of Lachlan, you know, at such a young age, I really, really built up on that skills and um, bit by bit. And then when I started really pushing myself in the endurance world and finding out what I would be capable of. Um, yeah, it was just this sort of realisation that I yeah, I remember this job came up at work. So it was a promotion and I worked in social care and worked with, you know, in the council and not a lot of like promotions were coming up for, for my line of work. And anyway, it came up, this job came up and I was like... I don't even want it. Like, I want to go part-time and, like, ride my bike. I just want to, like, see how far I could cycle. Like, the pool was that strong towards self-discovery. And I knew at that point that it wasn't in my career. Like, I didn't, you know, I that wasn't my happy place. So I just sort of took the chance. And it was a huge chance. Like, I went part-time at work. I met um, a coach, um, John Hampshire, who offered me some, like, free coaching. And that was it. Like, he was my, he was my Willy Wonka giving me that golden <laughs> ticket that was, you know, just life changing. And not that he put any pressure or any expectation on me, but it was just meeting the right person at the right time. So I had this deep curiosity of what I could do. I'd already started taking steps towards making time in my life to discover that. And then before I knew it, like now I had a coach, someone that was willing to listen to all my really boring chat about riding and heart rates and 
and you know what I should be doing and uh, not only that but giving amazing advice and yes yeah, some days I was like are you a coach or are you a therapist because you know you just like you just like spill you know you just spill everything that's going on that means that you haven't been able to ride that 150 miles or ever so um that was sort of going on for me and I'd gone out and I'd completed another bike packing race the Arizona 750 and that was incredible like the longest single track race in the world from Mexico to Utah right through there's like the hiker bike of a lifetime it's a 27 mile hiker bike through the Grand Canyon where your bike is not allowed to touch your wheels are not allowed to touch the ground and so you're carrying it on your back and I mean I was burst after that I was so broken we'd hitched a lift and me and another couple of people at the end hitched a lift to um uh, Las Vegas and so I had a couple of days there before I flew home um, and I was just like lying out, so sunny and I was just lying there with a beer and I was so broken, I was like could barely walk, My I was like so scabby in my face with sunburn and stuff and the windburn and I was just like well that was amazing, like where next? <laughs> you know it's that classic, like you can barely walk to your bed, you know you can barely walk to the toilet it, but you're like, right, now what? Um, and I was lying there, the hostel place had a pool and I was lying by the pool and that's when I first, that's when the first round the world sort of nugget seeped into my mind. Um, and I'd been looking up things like the um, doing the Triple Crown out in America, you know, so Arizona Trail and Tour Divide and the Colorado Trail because I'm a mountain biker, or I was, you know, it was like that was my event mountain biking but I'd come across the Guinness World Record for women and I was like well A no woman has done it like completely unsupported um, and there was only two of them that have done it and uh, I reckon that I could beat the last record like I'm riding distances like that already and as soon as I started thinking like that I mean that was it you know it was seeped in nothing else could have come close um but my biggest barrier was probably like not the riding because I was already on that journey but the record gave it so much I guess so much clout you know and I didn't know I just felt like you know do ordinary people like do like you know any adventurer I'd gone to see of course I know different now because like I'm I meet a lot more people now in that world but people that I'd gone to see giving talks and like inspiring people did not have a story like mine like they just you know there was nothing that I could relate to in their background and my background and so I had quite a big hurdle to get over with that like am I good enough not am I a good enough rider but am I a good enough person like can someone like me go out and beat that record and um, so that was yeah but, but but I mean yeah that was it, it always came back to well thinking you're not good enough it's not a good enough reason not to so <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's go and that's something you spoke a lot to your coach John about as well as sort of the physical training but also the mental training probably I mean I think I spoke to 
anybody that would listen to me honestly about it at the time. Um, John was one of the first people I told about it and he was like, great. I mean, I think I, I had the thought in April and I think I told him in the June and he was like, well, great, I'll coach you. I'll coach you on it. And he had really good um, advice. So when I compared myself to other people, which we do all the time, don't we? But I would compare myself to um, like Mark Beaumont. So, you know, Mark's rides and um, style is very different to mine, you know, and we have a great laugh about it. Um, but before I had the confidence to know that my style was okay as well, I'd be like, oh, I bet Mark didn't do this. And John would be like, but this isn't Mark's ride. This is your ride. So maybe it's okay that Mark didn't do this. And it was just like a really nice reminder that like you can take these things and own them, you know, and like make it your own. You don't have to fit into a mould, I guess. It's the thing that I was um, sort of battling against. And the route that you chose, how did that come about? Marks. Marks, okay. <laughs> so Mark, um, Mark, so some things are in a mold. So Guinness have, yeah, Guinness have got certain rules about, you know, you have to travel in an easterly direction. You're not allowed to, or you don't have to travel easterly. You have to stick to either easterly or westerly, whatever one you choose you have to stick to. So um, you need to pass through two opposite points on the planet, You, so, which means then you go to the Southern Hemisphere and there's also uh, um, like mileage um, you need to like ride over 18,000 miles and the full trip distance has to be longer than the circumference of the earth so there's that rules in place and Mark had gone out on his second time round um, the world and the year before had absolutely smashed the world record and came in in like 78 days for his ride albeit supported but just like had absolutely smashed his way across the world and that was exactly at the right time for me because I was just looking at like how I could do this and then so Mark I spoke to Mark a bit before it and you know went through the different route options so things like Australia North America like just made total sense you know it's a beautiful line um, across it you get the most mileage for your money you're definitely going east and um, so that was all sort of givens that yeah that's that's the way I would take but going across Russia I, ne I did not fancy just because the roads were so like I knew they were going to be really bad and I was looking at possibly going into like Kazakhstan and into China earlier, you know. Um, but Mark had this like amazing logistics team that was working with him that were like, the winds are going to be bad that way because Mark had thought about that too. But um, the winds are going to be not in your favour and like all these sort of other reasons. And... And then I just didn't pursue it. I was like, well, great. If they've done all that work, I was like sitting on my couch with scraps of paper. Like I'm so disorganized. I hate spreadsheets, although I'm learning that they're actually quite a good thing. But at the time, I just had no, like, I, you know, I just winged everything. So I was like in, on the back of envelopes and stuff, like working out budgets and like literally the back of envelopes. And so when I was like, heard that about the route, I was like, well, I'm not going to 
yeah, I'm just going to go for that. And the only changes I made to it was starting and finishing in Berlin instead of Paris. And um, like if there was detours, because Mark could stay, basically stay on the straightest road, the most, you know, efficient path. And then his team were going off and finding uh, resupplies for him. Uh, But I was doing the resupply bit myself. So I would detour a bit primarily that route. And do you remember the first day when you set off? What was going through your mind? Oh my goodness, just like, you are going to mess this up. <laughs> you are going to blow this, like make the most of day one, because who knows if you'll make it to day two. Oh. That's what it was like before I started. And then I, um, once I crossed that start line, I mean, there was no start line. It was just imaginary. When I crossed that imaginary line at 6am, I was like, boom, all fear, all imposter syndrome, all the worries and stresses about should I, could I, whatever, were gone. I was just riding my bike and it was so, like such a massive relief. It was unbelievable. You know, it was just such a reminder of like the riding is the easy bit of this. You know, it's like dealing with all the other head stuff, logistics, worries. You know, when you're just riding your bike, then you're just riding your bike. (laughs) It's really quite straightforward. I had a thought about the riding because obviously you're going for so long and so much that plays into the time is your uh, logistics and stuff. How much of it is actually about riding fast and how much of it is like not sleeping, making sure you're fueling quickly or, you know, you're traveling when you can't ride is not slow? Yeah, you're so right. I mean, it for me is just not about riding fast. It's about riding efficiently and um, stopping efficiently and living efficiently. Like that's that's where the time's going to be made up when you're riding for. You know, I think I averaged thirteen and a half hours a day riding throughout the world. So it's like that's you know, there's no sprint efforts in there, or if there is. It's been an effort. You pay for it the next day. So um, so it's just like keeping, maintaining that pace that you can carry on day after day, but making sure that you live efficiently. Although at the time, I didn't feel like I was living very efficiently because, you know, you just like focus on all the inefficient things that you've been doing that day. But then going back and writing the book, it's almost like being this sense of like relief because you don't realise like you're holding on to, is it guilt's maybe not the right word for it, but, you know, like you're holding on to these memories that of things you could have done better. And then when I went back and I was reading and listening to my audio diaries and it's like, you know, like, like four years down the line, I was like, oh my God, you were so hard on yourself. Like, I just wanted to tell that version of me, like, not to worry about it. You're doing great. Like, don't stress, you know. But um, at the time, yeah, at the time, I was pretty hard on myself. So has writing the book been quite a sort of nostalgic experience? Um, Again, that would be a very romantic (laughs) notion. 
<laughs> Anybody who knows me will be like, what? That is not what we saw coming out of you. Um, yeah, it's been an absolute roller coaster. It's been, you know, they talk about endurance riding being a roller coaster of emotions and managing your highs and your lows and writing a book. My goodness, just like the same, if not more. I feel far more comfortable on a saddle than I do sitting at a desk. So there was times that, you know, I'm really happy that I went places because like the number one aim is to give the reader the story, but not to give them the heaviness of like the bad decisions you were making or guilt you were feeling or, you know, like making excuses for anything. Like you have to just give it to them or like I want them to have it freely. Like, so I'm free of, of, of all that stuff. So um, it really was like, it wasn't just a case of like opening up the laptop and buying out some words. It was like, I had to go quite deep into like stuff that I'd maybe like, you know, buried away for quite a long time because, you you know, I've given a lot of round the world talks. Uh, like I speak about it a lot. I've done lots of interviews and podcasts and you tend to like your story gets channeled and well-versed and, and the book didn't allow that like it had to be pulled apart and you know I had had to have that time to sort of process what what had happened out there so yeah yeah it was a lot was there a particular moment that was a lot for writing yeah when you're writing and, and it sort of maybe it brought you back to something that happened and you were like wow I forgot about that or something you were like oh yeah this this was big yeah, that, you know, um, it, like particularly through the winter. So like winter in the Highlands, we've hardly got any daylight and, you know, it can often be quite miserable. And if you're like trying to, you know, I was trying to like get some daylight, but also like sit at a computer for a ridiculous amount of time a day. Um, and I felt the, the feeling I had was that I almost didn't know the person that I was writing about. It was like she was a different person because of where I was while I was writing sections of it. I mean, this book took me a long time. <clears throat> I was in a lot of different places when I was writing it, but that, that bit in particular, and I think maybe that was Australia, Australia and New Zealand sort of sections. Then I was like, she was so driven, you know, and I would think about her as in me in the third person almost because the women that was sitting at her desk for 10 hours a day and like clutching at some daylight hours and hadn't been out in the hill and was barely riding her bike was like a different person. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is. But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling... With Ketone IQ, 
your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Lat Mansour, and you can find it in all the usual places. When you finished the ride, how quickly did then that sort of kick in? So it's like, obviously, you finish it, you're exhausted, you take a couple of days to recover, and then you're just in normal life. What, what is, what's that like? <laughs> I love that, Will. So you finish, you've got four months on the bike, you finish, you have a couple of days recovery. <laughs> <laughs> oh um but yeah the recovery was huge and as much mental as physical you know it was like I just I rode everywhere so like just again I didn't do any down training despite John being like you need to do this stuff I just like my car failed at MOT when I was away so I had no vehicles so I just rode to work and rode to like shopping and to see people and um, and just sort of used it like that that I think mentally the yeah there was just a lot of processing going on and the exhaustion and other people's excitement and the reality of how I was feeling but not able to communicate it, it was like yeah it was quite big and I suppose I knew that it was going to be big but I didn't know what the big thing would be you know, like they talk, yeah, people talk about like the recovery being huge. Um, but yeah, I didn't quite, I didn't quite give that credit. So I guess I went back to work in social care for a couple of months, which was amazing because it was nine to four. I had to be somewhere Monday to Friday. Um, and I worked with young people who were extremely like so supportive of me and like so lovely for about 10 minutes. And then it was back to them, which I loved. Like I needed that. I was like, yes, like give me some purpose, give me some structure and just, you know, it like really sort of helped me uh, through that sort of few months after returning. And then, yeah, I left at Christmas and just sort of pursued a different life. <laughs> How long do you think it has taken you to process like your massive achievement? Or do you think the book is part of that process? I the book is probably part of that process. Yeah. I think the the ride itself, like, you know, I definitely wasn't thinking straight about it for I mean months afterwards, you know. It was like it, it would hit me when I was doing the dishes or something like that, and I'd be like, but I think like I was saying that like reading back my diaries and writing about the feelings and the places that was yeah there's part of that that sort of helped process everything for me I think yeah and sort of package that up that's five years old and so just the title of the book coffee first can you tell us a bit about why you chose it 
what it means to you? <laughs> like, you know, it's, you don't have a lot of luxuries out on the roads. Like I was sleeping in a bivy bag in ditches in, you know, just like toilet blocks. It was like, it was, you were pretty feral out there. But the one thing that really motivated me every morning was coffee and the search for coffee. And that came really quickly, like within the first couple of weeks, maybe even within the first week. Um, And it wasn't necessarily something that I had noticed at home. But if I was in my bivy bag and, you know, I'd be going the first few weeks, I was going on like four four or five hours sleep. Well, no, probably four hours sleep. And then I've like upped it to five because it's just like four was silly. And I would get out if I had coffee within like riding distance as in well everything's within riding distance if you're riding around the world but <laughs> it, like within like you know a nice distance like under 5k then I noticed that my head would be like right get up you can stay in your sleeping clothes and you can like ride to get coffee and then you can get changed there and like brush your teeth and <clears throat> do all that and so all of a sudden it just became like a little aim for that morning to get out of my bed and ride to something And that is like the first, getting the first couple of miles in in the day. You know, if you're at home, it's like that doorstep mile, isn't it? It's like, they're the hardest. It's getting out your bivy bag. That's the hardest thing to do. And once you're on your bike, it's easy. So coffee became a real crutch for me. And it became a bit of a ritual, I guess, on the road that I was sort of looking for coffee each morning. And obviously that sort of links in with the of lack of sleep and just being incredibly tired, which leads to other issues like hallucinations and stuff. What is that like and what kind of things did you sort of see that just weren't there? So that's really interesting because I have experienced that on sh- much shorter races that I've that I've done um, where you've just like taken things way too far and, you know, you're like not thinking straight. But going around the world on your own, it was really important that I didn't get into that state because, you know, I'm just digging way too deep into reserves and actually clawing that clawing that energy and time back would just you know almost be impossible because there's no like complete rest throughout that four months so I didn't yeah I didn't get into that state and I think that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the self-supported part of it is because you're very aware you know if I'm like mid-Siberia then like I'm the only person there looking after myself you know I'm the only one yes I want to ride as many miles as I can that day but I also need to stay safe I also need to stay well I also need to keep on top of my bike and maintenance and so keeping enough in the tank to be thinking straight was quite important although at night times they got funky like you know because I was riding through the night um, in different parts of uh, Russia because of the traffic and there was definitely like the bits where I was falling asleep and I took videos for um, we made a film so I was like recording clips and some of them are very funny because I'm like half asleep like in a bus shelter like talking about the cleaners being in in the morning and I'm like <laughs> what am I talking about like that's there is no cleaners you're in a bus stop so um so that moments just before I fell asleep if I was trying to do something else then they would get they would get silly but when I was out on the road yeah there wasn't there wasn't that sort of hallucinations and and what about the animals that you came across Oh my God. Like, I'm such a scaredy cat. <laughs> and 
I didn't even know it. I didn't know it. I thought I was like, yeah, I, d- I don't know what I'd be like if I wasn't so exhausted. Maybe I'd be a bit braver. But um, I mean, snakes are my thing. They're like the thing that I'm always like focused on. I really don't want to see them. I like freak out about them. And so before I went, it's literally all I thought about was the snakes um, and how to avoid them. And I didn't take into account any other like I knew there'd be bears I just thought oh, I'll just get some bear spray it was like just didn't sink in until I was lying in my bivy bag in Alaska having just seen my first bear and realizing that all I've got is this tiny little like tiny little canister like what was I thinking <laughs> oh my goodness uh, so yeah so there was a real realization <laughs> of the wildlife but you know what it was it, it's a game like when I read back on it I remember the the feeling so well of being frightened of the bears I was really freaked out by the kangaroos as well just it was so dark and they were like bouncing around the place just you know um and big they were they were really big and the time you're so in it alone like you're so so alone out there that you know, you can tell. I remember laughing to my mate who Emma, who had lived in Australia, and I phoned her as I was riding. And I was like, "You didn't tell me about the kangaroos! Oh my god, they're like, they're like drunk old men, just like bouncing out of the bouncing out of the bushes. They just looked like, oh god, they looked so feral." And we were laughing our heads off, and she was like, she was talking about them. And then I had this realization that she's about to go, she's about to hang up, and I'm still here with the kangaroos it's like is that like yeah it was that sort of realization that is only you that can like your headspace that can deal with them but again like reading back on the stuff that I was feeling about the bears and that they were just all animals I met just wanted to be left alone like none of them were actually any threat as such to me. I just needed to let them know that I was around, you know. I even, I rode through bison, like these wood bison, this herd of wood bison one night uh, going down the Yukon and I just had like my little dino light on. I didn't even have a head torch on that night and I was in it before I knew it. I was like actually in the herd, their heads and their heads, you know, they've got like that massive big long faces, flat flat faces. Um, And I was like eye to eye with them. And I was just like cantering my pedals to try and keep going. But I had to like keep going because my dino light was about to go out if I didn't. So it was like flickering and I was just like jangling because I had all my bear bells on. (laughs) just like hey you guys and then I was out of them and they didn't like you know I wouldn't recommend it but they were just so like forgiving you know they were just like yeah whatever just leave us to it so yeah it just sort of goes to show doesn't it that they just want to be left alone as much as you do that sounds absolutely incredible cycling through a herd of bison like (laughs) don't hear of that every day I know that that when I was writing about that, that was one that really sunk in because I'd somehow, yeah, I'd somehow just like let that go, like let that sort of go from my memory a bit. And then I was like, oh my God, I forgot like how intense that feelings were. Um, and then I'd got like, I'd cycled away from them um, up a hill and then I like turned around to sort of catch my breath a bit and the northern lights were incredible, like dancing all across the skies and 
was like, this is crazy. You know, out in the Yukon and just like riding through herd of bisons and the northern lights. And yeah, it was just a really special night. That sounds utterly, yeah, incredible. And what about the countries that you went through? Was there a particular place that you were like, that was incredible, I want to come back? Yeah, definitely. So um, Asia was really stole my heart, like straight away, Siberia, coming into Mongolia and northern China. Like um, it was, oh God. Yeah, it was just like the people, the culture, the moments that I had connecting with people who didn't really share a language with one another, but just had so much goodwill and kindness to share and yeah, it was, there was just some moments that I was like, you know, you can, you just couldn't plan for this because it was so beautiful and almost something about me being, you know, on a mission. Like I was not hanging about to have more time with anyone, which some people think is a bit of a shame, but I almost think it's like, you know, it's not the way to do every trip, definitely, but it gives those moments, it makes them even more meaningful because you know that you're just about to leave and it's intense and then you're gone again and they're just in your memory forevermore and you, I probably am in theirs as well and on their group whatsapp chats because they filmed everything <laughs> I would be horrified to come across one of that videos where I'm like Prancing about a game of charades, trying to tell them where I've just come from with like my hair stuck to my head and all sunburned. So funny. Um, and Alaska, I mean, Alaska and the Yukon just, you know, there was so, so much of it felt familiar. And I think from like, you know, being from the Highlands of Scotland, that like rural, wild landscape is something that I feel quite comfortable with. But yet that was just on a different scale. It was so remote and so big that like getting your head around the size of it was, yeah, it was a lot. So that two places were, yeah, really stood out. Because you, you obviously did it on a road bike and you had to stick, you were sticking to the roads for speed, right? Did you <laughs> feel like when you were going to places you were like, oh, I wish I had my mountain bike or gravel bike so you could, you know, explore it a bit more rather than sticking to the highway? Oh, big time. I miss the mountains. Like, I, you know, there's really big, long, flat sections, like a crossover, like four planes. And, they, like, you don't realize how big they are until you're riding on them for days and days and days. And although they come with their own beauty, they really do. And um, whenever I got to roads that were near mountains, like coming down the Rockies um, or like I, in New Zealand, I was just like, oh, I miss these guys like just want to get in about it and yeah climb or hike or yeah I, I made lots of promises to myself about all the mountain adventures I was going to have when I got home <laughs> and so with, with the book um are you hoping that it will inspire other people to maybe take on your record or do you think you want to do the record if you want to try it again I mean I hundred 10% do not want to do it again. Um, and not for any bad reason. It was like the ride of my life. You know, I had the most incredible, incredible time. And I just wouldn't be able to relive that. And I think if I was going to go back around the world on my bike, then I would take my mountain bike and I would take like four years to do it, you know, rather than four months. And, and I think that's okay because it's, you know, I've done it. And, you know, Mark was different. He did his very 
very differently he did a supported ride which I would just wouldn't be interested in so I wouldn't be interested in going and doing it the same way again so uh, yeah I mean if there's any lassies young lassies listening to this then just the thought of them um, taking on that record and more women being on history books for that you know it's just it's like a really hope that's the that's how things go in the future for it. And um I mean, you know, the first woman, Juliana, she she did it in like 2012. So it's a really recent record compared to the male's record that was in the 80s. So, yeah, definitely more lassies doing it. But I tried not to write the book to be inspiring or to be anything other than truthful and give my story and I know when you know I I know that I get a lot out of hearing people's story like hearing actually who they are and what they experienced and how they experienced it and it's that whole thing about not fitting into a mold so I you know I think I wrote it like that like I want just wanted to give a really honest yeah honest account of what it was like to ride around the world and people will take from that what they will you know or not you know I, I like I was saying to my pal when we were talking about marketing the book it was like well you know I'm not sure this book will inspire anyone to go and ride around the world <laughs> because god there's some real grim moments in it but you know if the if the right person it's that thing that happened with me and John you know if you meet the right person if you read the right book and you're in that that mindset that you're already questioning your own ability then you know you could read you could read any book and it's going to spark you off in a direction isn't it so yeah I think at the ending of my book I definitely wanted to I guess to highlight the you know like I always think it's really sad that like loads of people come up to me and tell me about their own adventures and the majority of them start it with but it's nothing like the stuff that you do and I just think that comparison is like it's really important for people to know like it's exactly like the stuff I do it's exactly like the stuff any adventurer does or anyone that's done like some big um a challenge like they don't just do big stuff it's this little stuff that inspires us it's the weekends away with your mates it's the regular nights out it's the like you know having training buddies it's like that's the stuff that most people are at, the, at their happiest I think while they're doing it um, and then if you feel like you know you want to take that make an extension of that then great do it but never play down that sort of um, everyday adventure if you like weekend adventures so important and does your book have more advice for people that might want to take on the round the world challenge or do you have anything that you any wisdom you'd want to share with someone listening that they're like "Mm, where do I even start I mean I think my book will have plenty of advice when people read it and they'll be like right I'm not going to do that then Jenny (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean where do you start like you know where do you start with, with if you want to ride around the world or where do you start with uh, like bikepacking yeah both what Emma's what Emma's really trying to say is that by the time this comes out she'll be preparing to ride from London to Tunisia so she just wants some tips basically yes. <laughs> any advice Jenny if you have any advice for me please do share <laughs> <laughs> are you racing Emma are you like is it a tour or is it a fast ride or it's just a solo trip. It's about 3,000 kilometres um, from London to Tunis. Well, 
Technically, it's London to the bottom of Italy where you can get a ferry to Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, because um, you can't you can't yeah. go through Algeria, which is a bit of a bit of a shame. But still, it's going to be a big old adventure. That is incredible, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think um, I think really that what became very apparent out on the roads was like, yes, around the world was a massive adventure. What you're about to do is a huge adventure. But if you break it down, what are the skills that you need for it? Like you need to be comfortable living on your bike. You need to be comfortable traveling places that you maybe don't speak the language and start communicating with people. You need to be comfortable comfortable sleeping out at night you need to be know yourself fairly well that you know like you know you're not going to dig yourself into a big hole or you know like you're not going to push too hard or go too easy on yourself or whatever um and you need to have like basic bike mechanic skills or being a bodge I, I'm a bodger I'm not a bike mechanic <laughs> I'm a total bodger through and through um and like when you break that down you're like, well, I'm just putting them all together and going day after day after day after day. But the skill set is exactly the same, isn't it? So, um, and I think before you even start thinking about that or getting close to a ride like you're doing, then you've probably got all that little, that skill set in place. So, um, you know, you've got that system. So it's sort of like, yeah, just working, working them out, writing them down, sort of believing that, yeah, that you're there with it. Or if you're not, then you know, get on a course. <laughs> your mate's out. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> when did your book come out? So my book is released on the 13th of April. Um, so yeah, it's going to be out by the time this recording goes out, I think. Um, I'm, it's about a week away. In fact, it's a week today. It's not about a week. Um, a week today that it's going to be released and I'm going to take it on a UK pedal-powered book tour, um, which is so exciting. I feel like this is the reward that I get for writing the book now. <laughs> Because I'm going to ride from the very south in down in Bournemouth, and I'm going to ride back up to Inverness, uh, visiting like 20 different venues along the way, talking about the book, talking about the ride, and then meeting up with 10 different uh, communities, bike clubs, groups along the way, and doing like social events there too. So it's going to be a big social month, um, lots of chat about the book. So by the time this podcast come out, I am probably going to be lying in a dark room recovering from it. <laughs> I mean, is there a plan for after the book, aside from the tour? Oh man, it's yeah. So I mean, no, um, there's not a, there's not a grand master plan. Um, I'm I work like I'm really lucky that I work with Global Cycling Network as a presenter. So um, I've got like a set amount of days I do with them. Um, I work with some different brands that you know have been really supportive and um, sort of like yeah, create stories and stuff for them. Um, and the book is yeah has sort of taken up like a big a big space so now um yeah I've I've got all these other things going on um but yeah I do I need to yeah see how see how it feels afterwards I'm I'm desperately trying not to fill the uncomfortable void that's in my life that's ahead of me do you know that feeling that it's like 
always having to fill the void, always having to fill the void. So I've just been like, yep, it's uncomfortable, not quite knowing how you're going to play this. But equally, I think it's really important to give yourself some breathing space after it. Because it's so easy, like, you know, I've been offered some amazing opportunities and like projects to work on and stuff. And I'm just like, it would be so easy to say yes to all of them. I think, no, like, let's just see what direction you actually want to go in now so yeah watch this space sounds good jenny thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us it's been wonderful having a chat with you and hearing about your new book that we're all very excited about that's brilliant it's been great sharing stories with you thank you both oh wasn't that brilliant that was really good she's really good value yeah and she's just so interesting and i think I really particularly like the bit when she's like about not diminishing your adventures and comparing them to other people's. You personally like that because it makes you feel better about your own. Yeah, I could really relate to it. (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh, she's so right. Get off Instagram and do it. (laughs) But I think it would, I can imagine it was really hard to sort of see Mark Beaumont absolutely bashing it out around the world in about two days to then be going to do like a... (laughs) two days it's hard not to compare yourself yeah exaggeration obviously (laughs) yeah definitely but I mean he was you know he was supported it's totally different oh yeah it's a completely it'll be a completely different experience yeah would you ever try and cycle around the world is that of interest the endurance thing does interest me but it's a bit too much I think I'd be really bad I think it'd be terrible I think I'd give up (laughs) as in too much though what, what would be your limit I don't know probably like a few nights a few nights. Okay. Three nights? I think I'd lose my mind very easily. <laughs> I think you've got to try it. Like she says she didn't hallucinate, but, you know, I'd be hallucinating by day three, I think. Where's my food? Where's the next food? <laughs> yeah. Please. <laughs> Just all about food, isn't it, for you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get serious, like, you know, electric car drivers get range anxiety for running out of battery. I, I get the same with food, like, when's the next meal? I am really bad, and I actually need to make sure I'm not bad when I go to Tunisia, but um, I have a tendency to just keep going and not thinking about food, because I'm like, oh, come on, just like 20 more K, oh, just 30 more K, and then obviously it ends up a total disaster, yeah, <laughs> and I'm on the problem. side of the road shoveling chips into my mouth like an absolute monster. <laughs> yeah, definitely need to improve that. Um, also, quite interesting how challenging writing a book is like obviously she's done the big old adventure and now you've got to go back and you've got to put it all into words but it makes sense so i guess for her comfort zone's on the bike right whereas yeah. for you you probably find i mean i don't know about your ability riding around the world but your comfort zone's probably be more in writing a book yeah that's true no i have actually written a book albeit i'm on editing chapter five so watch the space <laughs> What's your book about? Uh, it is a fiction novel about a... It's an adventure series, so yeah, there's going to be forever them. But yeah, basically it's about a girl who... who moves cycles to, around the world and she's called Jenny. Caribbean, <laughs> moves to a Caribbean island and she comes across this magical world and it's all the, about the adventure that she has there. And it sort of entwines into that, the relationship she has with her parents, um, the ideas of consumerism on small children in particular and questions also around like neocolonialism something I studied at uni and I think it's so interesting and I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean and I went on a lot of adventures there so it's a big old mush of all of that um, and it's really like Jenny was saying well <laughs> it's a bit romantic to put it like this but it is really like therapeutic in a way to write a book like that but yeah that was wicked also 
riding through a herd of bison. Thoughts? In the dark was obviously the hard part, knowing that your light's about to run out and you've got to keep pedalling. It's difficult. But aren't bison massive? Yeah. Like, but I mean, you know, it <laughs> dark could be... Dark or daylight, not going to be... But even still, like, when I hear bison, I don't necessarily think, like, death, right? Oh. Whereas no, if I it was, like, a family of buffalo. bears... But like a more obviously dangerous herd, or even like bull cows, would would get me really upset. Oh, cows! Yeah, I'd get upset with cows. But yeah, bison. It sounded, and then the Northern Lights. Like sound, sounded magical. That was a bit where I was like, I think I want to do this. Sounds lovely. Yeah, but it, like she was saying, if she did it again, she'd do it and you know take it in a bit more. I guess. Oh, she said she wouldn't do it again. No, obviously, <laughs> so. but she'd take four years. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, she would take four years, you're right. <laughs> oh, well, um, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. There's a lot to think about. Yeah, excellent. And we'll look out for Will on his next adventure. <laughs> yeah, riding to work. Uh, don't forget to check out the Cyclist Magazine website and also our other podcast episodes and subscribe to the magazine. And we'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.